We are returning to our series in the book of Genesis today, so if you do have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter 17. And by the way, let me just say, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles available out at the uh, Connect Desk in the lobby. If you don't own a Bible, yeah, you're more than welcome to grab one of those and take it home with you as our gift to you. But uh, we are in Genesis 17 this morning. We're in a series. The series is called Between Promise and Fulfillment. And we are making our way through chapters 12 to 25 in the book of Genesis. Uh, While you're locating the passage, uh, let me just uh, give you a little sense of where we are headed this morning. Uh, A.W. Tozer was one of the leading voices in the Alliance Church in the past century. And he said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He went on to say the most portentous fact about any individual is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And what Tozer was saying was that the secret to who we really are is not our self-image, who do we imagine ourselves to be, but our God image. Who do we think God is and how do we respond to that. And that actually runs contrary to what is ingrained in us from the time that we are very young. I mean, our education system begins with a focus on self. If you have young kids, then you know that you know their kindergarten career probably began with an assignment, something along the lines of all about me. Right? Here's who I am. This is the house I live in. Here's the people in my family. This is what I like, and on it goes. Now, there's nothing wrong with understanding who you are as, a, as an individual and, and all of that, but the place that we need to start is not with the question, who am I, but with the question, who is God? And it's really that question that's at the heart of the passage we're going to look at today. It's Genesis chapter 17. It's a long passage. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety for you. This is God's word. Here's what it says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, 
You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and shall be and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sheris shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, bought with his money every male among the men of Abram's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house Those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Well, having just heard that passage read aloud, you might be thinking a chapter on the covenant of circumcision. What possible relevance could this have for my life? So I want to disabuse you of that notion today. Uh, There is a lot for us to learn from this passage, and I'm going to draw your attention to four truths that we discover here. And the first thing we learn about is simply the passage of time. Uh, Maybe this is more of an aside than the main point, but the narrator seems to be deliberate in helping us understand the unhurriedness of God. And you can see this quite easily just by comparing the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. So the very last verse in chapter 16 says, Abram was 86 years old, When Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then chapter 17 begins. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me. So 13 years are basically just blanked. I mean, we know a little bit about what happened, but we don't really know much of what happened during those 13 years. 13 years is a long time, isn't it? But when you're 86... Imagine how long it is. I mean, Abraham has entered that stage of life where he shouldn't even be buying green bananas, right? And yet he's got to wait another 13 years. But God doesn't seem to be in any kind of hurry. Now, in truth, Abraham had already been waiting for God's promise to come to fruition for more than just the 13 years between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Way back in chapter 12, when God first called Abram and made promises to him, We were given this fact about Abraham. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, it's hard to wait at the best of times. We've already seen that Abram and Sarai grew tired of waiting for God's promise to come to pass. And so they tried their own sort of deity assistance plan, right? The promise is not coming. I'm not getting pregnant. Maybe things will work out if Abraham, why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar? And we know how that turned out. 
But I think it's important that we understand that we're not actually just learning about Abraham's patience or lack thereof. The passage of time teaches us something about God's ways. Dale Ralph Davis makes this insightful comment. He said, the unhurriedness of God seems strange and unwelcome to us. The passage of time with no noticeable moves toward promise fulfillment poses a problem for faith. We prefer a deity with high blood pressure who's on the move, whose promises are delivered with microwavable instruction. And he's right. We are an impatient people. We live in an age of instant everything. We want results now. Now, I'm now old enough to remember a time in life when television shows were released one episode at a time And you had to wait an entire week in between episodes. Netflix has conditioned us all to think, well, all you do is you just push play next episode and instantly you get to watch whatever you want. We've been watching uh, the Kids Baking Championship as a family this, uh, this winter. And the thing that's driving me most nuts about the show is having to wait a week in between to find out what happens, right? So who's going to win this thing? Reggie or Sam or Grayson? I just, I, I'm just dying to know. It's hard to wait. Abram and Sarah have been waiting for 24 years at this point, And it looked like nothing was happening. And maybe the thing we need to learn from the passage of time throughout this section is that most of life actually takes place in the ordinary day in, day in, or day in, day out of everyday existence. We should expect large swatches of time when it seems like not much is happening. That does not mean God is not active, that he's not fulfilling his promises and his purposes. It means that he's on a different timetable than you and I are. You know, in the first century, the church experienced a good deal of persecution. And many of the believers hoped that Jesus would return quickly and set everything right. And some mocked them for that. And in the midst of all that, the Apostle Peter encouraged the believers he was writing to to understand that God's timetable is different from ours. He said this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, we see 13 years of waiting or 24 years of waiting, and we think that is a long time to wait. But God is not bound by our timetable. He has a much different perspective on time than we do. So we learn about the passage of time. Second thing we learn about here is the nature of God. I told you at the beginning that the thing of paramount importance in our lives is what we think about God. Now, this passage is not exhaustive when it comes to God's nature, but it does help us understand a couple of vitally important truths about who God is. I entitled this message, The Covenant-Making God. God makes covenants with His people. In fact, the entire scope of biblical history from Genesis to Revelation can be seen in the various covenants that God initiated and entered into with his people. And we can see that God is a covenant-making God in two ways in this passage. Firstly, we see it in verse 1 where it simply says, The Lord appeared to Abram. Now that word LORD, all caps, is God's covenant name. 
In Hebrew, it consists of just four consonants. The, the best guess at how it ought to be pronounced is Yahweh. And all through the Old Testament, the name Yahweh shows us that God is the kind of God who initiates a relationship with us. He enters into a covenant with us. But beyond just the fact of God's covenant name being used here, the word covenant appears 13 times in this chapter. It's the dominant theme of the passage that God establishes a covenant. He initiates a covenant with Abraham. Now, we hear that word used sometimes, covenant, and we tend to think of a covenant as as a contract of sorts, and it's an agreement between two parties. Covenant might have a little more nuance than that, but it is an agreement between two parties. We sometimes refer to marriage as a covenant relationship where two people enter into this relationship. They promise to each other they're going to love, cherish, and honor one another until death shall separate them. It's a covenant. Now, covenants were common in ancient times, but what we need to remember is that most covenants in ancient times were not covenants or agreements between two equal parties. Covenants were based on the surrender of control. And ancient Near Eastern literature is filled with examples of covenant documents. Most of those covenants, most of the ancient covenants that we have access to were agreements between conquering nations and the nations that were now subject to this new ruler or lord. One nation would conquer another nation and they would say, look, we're going to provide protection and resources for you, but you have to abide by the stipulations outlined in this covenant. Now, why do I bother to point that out? And what does that have to do with the nature of God? Well, it's worth pointing out because it means that we do not set the terms for our relationship with God. He does. Commenting on the way these ancient covenants worked and didn't work, Ian Duguid said this, Imagine the weaker king in an ancient covenant saying to the great king, Fine, let's do a deal here, but I want to be in charge in this relationship. I want to say what you can do and what you can be like, and don't come making any demands of me. Now, the weaker king would never do that because he would know that would mean the loss of limbs or the loss of life. But this is the way many people think about their relationship with God or the way many people approach their relationship with God. And we've got this entirely backwards. See, lots of people approach God as if they're interviewing him for a job. Do you have what it takes to be my personal deity? I mean, are you for all the things that I'm for? Are you against all the things that I'm against? And this is what people are doing when they say things like, well, the God I worship, he isn't all, you know, hung up on all this morality stuff. Or I like to think of God as non-judgmental. Or I like to think of God like this or like that. But again, when God initiates a covenant with us, we don't get to negotiate the terms. We don't get to dictate what he can do or what he can be like. As Ian Duguid went on to say, when the great king comes and offers to establish a covenant with you, you really have only two choices. You can accept the covenant on his terms and receive its benefits, or you can refuse it and face the consequences. And notice that in this passage, God is the one who's dictating the terms. So in verse 5, he says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. He does the same thing with Sarah in verse 15. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah Sarah shall be her name. Now, names were a big deal in ancient times. 
Your name was tied up with your identity. It was a huge part of who you were. And these name changes signal the fact that God is going to give Abram and Sarai new identities. So they signal the blessing that God wants to convey on them. But they also signal God's ownership, that he has the right to do this. I mean, you name things that you own or that you have authority over. I remember just being reminded of this when our kids were were young. I mean, every single stuffed animal in our house, every plaything, it seemed like, even the blankets had names that the kids had given to them. It's a way of sort of establishing your authority or ownership of a thing. And this is what God does here. He's the one in charge. But even more than just the naming or renaming, listen to the terms that God sets forth for his covenant with Abraham. After telling him, this is what I'm going to do for you, make you into a great nation, give you descendants, have kings come from you, make you a father of a multitude. God then says this in verse 10 as a covenant stipulation. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Wait, what? I mean, I imagine if, if I were Abraham, I would have been going, I think I'm, I might have misheard what God said there. You, you want me to exercise? I mean, what, what, is the, what, what are you asking me to do here? God institutes this covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And he says, the sign of the covenant between me and you is circumcision. Okay, so why circumcision? I mean, why not just, you know, a t-shirt with like a clever logo on it? I belong to God. Or tattoo even. Was circumcision just something painful to make sure Abraham was serious? You know, sort of like lying on a bed of nails or walking across hot coals. Now I know you're really serious about this. What was the significance of circumcision? Now, circumcision did not originate here. Other nations practiced circumcision, usually as a sort of rite of passage into puberty, So circumcision was not a new thing, but it was given an entirely new meaning and new significance for Abram and all his descendants afterwards. Circumcision was a a sign or a symbol, much like a wedding ring is a sign or a symbol. Now, a ring itself doesn't necessarily symbolize marriage. I mean, you might wear more than one ring. You might wear a ring on uh, different fingers, But when you take a ring and you place it on what we call the ring finger on your left hand, it symbolizes that you are married. The ring is given new significance. And the covenant of circumcision that God initiated with Abraham worked in much the same way. This rite or this circumcision was given new meaning, new significance. So what was the significance? Well, just think about the promise that God had made to Abraham, the nature of the promises that he had made to him. He was going to make him into a great nation. He was going to become a father of a multitude of peoples. So the sign of the covenant was applied to Abraham's organ of reproduction. This is what God's promises centered around. He was going to make him into a great nation. He was going to become a father of a multitude. So it makes sense that the sign of the covenant then is applied to the means by which the covenant will be fulfilled. And the sign was also for all of Abraham's descendants afterwards. All males were now to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. Now, the external sign of circumcision was never meant to be a substitute or a replacement for a relationship with God. Circumcision was the symbol of a life surrendered to God. It was a reminder 
to every Israelite that they existed as a nation by the initiative and grace of God alone. We learned something else about the nature of God, but the second of God's names or titles that's used here. Verse 1 again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. The Lord's first words to Abraham here are, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew name is El Shaddai. And it was fitting for God to reveal himself to Abraham by this name because he was about to do something that only he could do. He was about to demonstrate that he is, in fact, almighty. Abraham was 99 years old. His wife was not much younger. Conceiving and bearing a child at that age was impossible by all human measurements. But God demonstrates that there is nothing that is too difficult for him. He is God Almighty. And this entire journey for Abraham, this entire period between promise and fulfillment was in part at least about Abraham coming to the place where he learned who God was, that he was, in fact, the Lord Almighty, that there's nothing too difficult for him. So I don't want to steal too much from next week's passage, but that's actually the question God will ask Abraham in chapter 18. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. See, nothing is too difficult for God. Abraham learned that lesson through experience, and we need to learn that lesson as well. We don't have a weak God who is sitting in heaven sort of puzzling over what he ought to do about hard situations or circumstances. We serve God Almighty. There is nothing that is too difficult for him. Third thing we learn about from this passage is the exceeding abundance of God's promises. I kind of stole the wording uh, from that, from the book of Ephesians, where we're told that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we might ask or imagine. Now, this series is called Between Promise and Fulfillment, and much of what we've been focusing on throughout it so far is the between part of the equation, right? How hard it is to live in that time between promise and fulfillment. But we would be making a massive mistake if we did not take time to think about the promise part of the equation. I mean, the whole reason Abraham began this journey in the first place is because when God called him, he promised him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as we've been making our way through the series, those promises have been getting more specific. But I want to draw your attention to three specific aspects of the exceeding abundance of God's promises. First thing we should notice is the eternal nature of God's promises. Look again at verse 8, where God says this, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So this promise God makes is that this is for everlasting. It's for all time. Now notice that language carefully. I mean, we know that Abraham himself did not experience the fulfillment of that promise in his lifetime. In fact, he was told when God first initiated the covenant with him in chapter 15 that he wouldn't see the fulfillment of the land during his lifetime. So what does that mean? How can God say he will give him all the land of Canaan to Abraham and to his offspring? I mean, does that just mean that Abraham would inherit the land in the sense that his descendants would occupy it later? Is that what to you and your offspring means? 
I'm not so sure. Look, look back at verse 7, the verse immediately preceding that. This is what God says there. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So what does that mean in verse 7? It means that God is promising, I'm going to be your God and I will be their God as well. So if it means that in verse 7, why wouldn't it mean exactly the same thing in verse 8? That God makes this promise both to Abram and to his offspring. See, I think there's a hint of the resurrection here. Abraham will, in fact, see this promise fulfilled. He will experience all the land that God promised in heaven. And if you think I'm reading more into it than there is, you might just think about how the writer of Hebrews reflects on this event. Here's what he says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city, or to the city, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. See, there's something greater than just the land of Canaan. And Abraham experiences the fulfillment of that promise in heaven. And we should know the promises given to us are eternal in nature as well. Here's how Peter says it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then he says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So if you follow the news at all, then you know that the markets are in a tailspin right now because of fears about the coronavirus. Now, over time, the markets will rise again. But when things like this happen, it should remind us that there is no such thing as absolute security in this world. There's nothing that we possess that cannot be taken from us or or that we do not lose at death. But the inheritance that we have, the promise that we have from God is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is kept in heaven for us. It is so much more sure. Second thing we ought to notice about God's promises to Abraham, and by extension, his promises to us, is that they are better than we can imagine. I mean, Abraham, here's what God says. God says, look, I'm going to fulfill this promise. You are going to have a son with Sarah. And after hearing that, this is what Abram does, or what it says in verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. See, Abraham hears those words and he thinks, that's too good to be true. You know what? I've already got a son, Ishmael. He's 13 years old. Why not? Let's just make that count. That's good enough for me, God. And God says, no, look, I'm going to fulfill this promise. You are going to have a son and your son will come through Sarah. See, I think this again is the result of not thinking about who God has shown himself to be. Sometimes we think that God is somehow reluctant to bless us or he's withholding good from us. Jesus sets us straight on the matter when he says this, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, I think sometimes we hear the promises of God and we think, well, that's too good to be true. 
I mentioned this already, but Paul puts it this way in the book of Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we might ask or think according to the power at work within us. God is able to do far more than we might ask or imagine. That's the nature of his promises. And I think most of us have a picture of God that is far too small. The best way I can illustrate that is just to tell you just my thoughts about Costco, what it's like to go to Costco. See, I'm always amazed. Every time I go to Costco, I'm amazed at what I see. And the thing that amazes me the most is the lineups. Not at the checkouts, but around the sample tables, right? You've been there. I mean, you know how this works. There's like 12 people. They're hovered around this sample table, and there's, a, there's someone there spreading a little bit of jam on a, on a one-inch cracker. And I always just think, like, do they not have food at home? Is, there, is this place not filled with like so many crackers and jars of jam and everything else you could possibly imagine? And this is how we are with the promises of God. I mean, God makes these amazing promises to us. The store is filled with food. And we think we're making out like bandits when we get a little cracker with a spot of jam on it. God's promises to us are exceedingly abundantly above all that we might ask or imagine. Third feature of God's promise we ought to take note of is the fact that it is intensely personal. So what do I mean by that? Well, I'm jumping around a little bit because it's a long passage and the promises are woven throughout the passage. But I want you to listen again to verse 7 because this is actually such a great promise that we ought to receive. Here's what God says. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Do you notice the nature of what God is promising? He's promising to be their God. Such a great promise. What does it mean? Well, this is, I think it would do well to just reflect on what it might mean for us to say that God is our God. This is not an exhaustive list, but think about all the ways that God is described to us in the scriptures. He's our father, the one who loves us and cares for us and disciplines us. He's our rock, our fortress, our shield, the one who protects us. He's our shepherd, the one who leads us and provides for us. He's our savior and our deliverer, the one who rescues us from all our trouble. He's our redeemer, our comforter, our helper, and our friend. This and so much more is what it means to say that God is our God. And what we need to see in this passage is that while God promises to give Abraham both land and offspring, his greatest promise is to be his God. He promises to give himself. And this is God's promise for us as well. There's an incident from the ministry of Jesus that's recorded for us in the Gospel of John. Shortly after Jesus had miraculously fed the 5,000. And here's what it says. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, the gift of greatest importance, according to Jesus, was not the miraculous bread that he provided. The the greatest gift, according to Jesus, is the gift of himself. And we need to take that to heart. 
personal gifts. So what are we supposed to do with the exceedingly abundant promises of God? Well, there's a character in one of Agatha Christie's murder mysteries that helps us understand, I think, what we should do with God's promises. In her story entitled Christmas, she relates how one of the characters, Simeon Lee, used to go to his wall safe where he had stashed a bunch of uncut diamonds that he had gotten from South Africa. And Simeon Lee would go to that safe, he would open it up, he would pick up handfuls of the diamonds, and he would let them run through his fingers for the sheer pleasure of feeling them. That's exactly what we need to do with the promises of God. We need to read them, we need to meditate on them, we need to let them run through our fingers for the sheer pleasure of being reminded of what God has promised those who are in Christ Jesus. So this passage teaches us about the passage of time. It teaches us about the nature of God. It teaches us about the exceeding abundance of God's promises. And lastly, it teaches us about the proper response to God's covenant. So while the covenant that God institutes is a covenant between two unequal parties, the obligations of both parties are outlined here. So you'll notice in verses 6 to 8 that there's a preponderance of the verb, I will. This is what God says. This is his part. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to their offspring, and I will give to you and to your offspring after the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then it switches in verse 9. In verse 9, it begins to outline what Abraham has to do. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. And God then goes on to spell out the details of the covenant and the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. This is what you must do. And then verses 22 and following show us Abraham's response to this covenant that God initiated. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. So if we were to sum up Abraham's response to God initiating this covenant, we could sum it up with one word, obedience. God says, do it. Abraham does it. Now that covenant that God initiated with Abraham was a conditional covenant. You would, he would experience the blessings of the covenant only if he obeyed. So where does that leave us today? I mean, how are we supposed to respond to God initiating a covenant relationship with us? Are we supposed to respond like Abraham and likewise be circumcised? And the answer is yes, just not in the way you might think about it. Here's how the New Testament appropriates... The Old Testament concept of circumcision for Christians. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And you see, the good news of the gospel is that we respond to God's invitation to relationship not by keeping the law perfectly, but by submitting to the one who has met all of God's righteous requirements on our behalf. 
Jesus. The record of debt that stood against us. Every sin that we've ever committed, every requirement of God that we have failed to do, all of it has been nailed to the cross. And it is on that basis that we have any standing before God. So what do we do when God initiates this covenant with us? He says, I want to be in relationship with you. The quote I read you earlier, when the great king comes and offers to establish a covenant with you, you really have only two choices. You can accept the covenant on his terms and receive its benefits, or you can refuse it and face the consequences. You see, it's such a gracious offer that God makes. The terms of his covenant are to place our faith in his son who has met all of God's requirements perfectly on our behalf. He becomes our substitute. And on that basis, we are God's children. Lord, we thank you for this day in particular. We thank you for the opportunity we've had even to be here today to offer our worship to you, to hear from your word. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be filled with the promises of what you have in store for us. And even more than that, Lord, that our hearts would be filled with what it is that you have done for us. Your grace has invited us into this relationship. God, we pray even as we celebrate communion today that we would be mindful of your gracious offer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.